Well, the, the phrase um, I, I use for this sermon specifically is the title, Fearlessly Dependent. Uh, and, and that phrase, as, as seen in our day and age, uh, is seen within our culture as really an oxymoron. Like those two words, uh, fearless and dependent, uh, from our world, they don't fit together. In, in fact, if you were to Google these two words, fearlessly dependent, uh, your results would show actually just the opposite. Uh, you would see result after result after result of, of such things as how to become fearlessly independent. Uh, it, it's almost like Google's like, did you mean this? Uh, in, in fact, one article I actually stumbled upon this past week I read from the Huff Post that said, uh, in order for you to find joy in your life, there needs to be this, this push toward uh, self-reliance. There's got to be this push. If you're going to find meaning and purpose in your life, there's got to be this push towards moral independence, uh, this push towards self-directing freedom. Uh, I determine who I am, and I am in need of nothing, and I am in need of no one. And the world's philosophy is that, is, is that as you move closer and closer to self-reliance, uh, where you are sufficient in and of yourself, that, that you're all that you need, the, the, the philosophy, the result, they would say, is that you'll become more fearless, uh, more courageous, more healthy, healthier, and, and free. Okay, how's that working for us? How's that working? I mean, honestly, how is that working for us? Well, statistics would show that, that people today are far more anxious, far more depressed, far more lonely, far more fearful than at any other point since health professionals began keeping track. Now, I'm not saying that these things are this direct correlation. There's certainly other factors at play here. We also can't ignore that, that the more culture seems to push this philosophy, this worldview of independence, of autonomy, of self-reliance, uh, the more desperate, the more depressed, the more anxious, and the more fearful people become. And, and this isn't some new phenomenon. Human beings have always leaned toward or drifted toward self-reliance rather than dependence uh, upon God, their creator. Uh, we can track this all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve. Their rebellion against God, the creator, was a desire to be independent from him. That, that God was keeping something from them and that they needed to discover it. And, and the consequences from their actions are the consequences that follow our actions when we drift away from our creator. But they're always going to be the same. Fear, worry, shame, guilt, anxiety, hopelessness. It's because we were created to live in a state of dependency. We were created to live in a state of dependency upon the Lord. Because it's only there in his presence that we find Hope in the midst of brokenness. It's only there that we find courage to face life's difficulties. And it's only there that we actually find a fearlessness to live on mission. In fact, the more that we strive toward independence, the more enslaved we actually become to, to our, our guilt, to, to fear, to our own sin. But the more that we strive toward dependence upon God, our creator, actually what takes place is the more free and courageous and fearless we become. And so you might ask, well then how can I, how can I live then as, as a follower of Jesus, how can I live a daily life of dependence upon God when the message from the world and the message from my own heart is that I'm enough and that I'm all that I need? Well, we began last week 
in Judges 6, looking at the life of, of Gideon. And, and if you remember last week, we were looking at this trajectory of his life that God was bringing him on. So God had called this, this weak and mighty warrior to, to lead Israel into battle against the enemy, the Midianites. So, so Gideon, when we're introduced to him in, in Judges 6 at the beginning, he's, he's fearful, he's timid, and he's weak by his own admission. But God gives him this promise and says, listen, don't fear, because here's the promise. I'm with you. I'm going to be with you. And so last week, we saw in chapter 6, God's patience with Gideon as he was just taking him on this journey, on this trajectory from this state of fear and uh, timidity and weakness and leading him to this place of, of courage, to, to be this, this leader that he could be as, as he depended on God. So last week, if you remember, Judges 6 ended with, with God's sign that he gave to Gideon of his presence with him. And now here we are in Judges 7, and, and Gideon is now coming face to face with the enemy. And, and, at, and at first, it seems as though Gideon is, okay, he's ready. It seems as though he is full of courage. But what we're going to see as we walk through chapter 7 is his courage at the beginning of this day is a false courage. It's a weak courage because it's rooted in self-reliance rather than independency on his God. And so before God can give Gideon the victory, before this enemy, the Midianites, can be given into his hand, God is going to be doing some much-needed pruning in Gideon's life, which is, is painful for him, and it's also confusing. And it's confusing what God is doing, but what we're going to see is that through this pruning, God is going to breathe new life into his heart new life into his soul as, as he finds his, his source of strength, his source of courage in dependency on God alone. And so from, from God's work in Gideon's life, we're going to see that, that since God through Jesus has already given the enemy into our hands, we must strive to live fearlessly dependent upon the Lord who is our strength. And so the God who is at work in Gideon's life that we heard read here in, in chapter 7 is the same God who is at work in your life, the same God who's at work in my life. It's the same God who's at work in, in our lives. God does not change. And so the work he does here is going to be the work he continues to do in the people that he loves. And so from the, from the text and, and from God's working in Gideon's life, let's Let's look at how God works. Let's look at how he moves in the lives of those that he loves. And, and we're going to see from this three imperatives then that we must do by God's grace if we're going to move from a, a state of fear, maybe a state of timidity, of anxiety, of weakness, of enslavement and shame to this place of, of courage and joy and freedom and delight and eternal life being fearlessly dependent upon our God. And so three imperatives I'm going to give us this morning as we look at the life of God through Gideon. The first imperative is that we must entrust your life. You must entrust your life to God's affectionate pruning. Entrust your life to God's affectionate pruning. Look at verse 1 again. It says, Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and, and all the people who were with him, they rose early and they encamped beside the spring of Herod. 
And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. Now, so remember, this verse, verse 1, is coming right after God's miraculous sign that he had given to Gideon, after Gideon asked him for a sign at the end of chapter 6 with the fleece. Do you remember last week with the fleece? So Gideon, before he goes into battle, says to God, okay, if, if you're with me, if you're going to lead me, if you're really going to deliver us from the enemy, I need a sign. So I'm going to lay this fleece out overnight, and in the morning I want the fleece to be wet and all the ground to be dry. Well, God does that. So Gideon comes back to God the next night and says, okay, one more time. This time, though, I want, God, would you, would you make the ground all wet but the fleece dry? This would be a sign to me of your presence with me as I'm leading your people in to battle. God does it again, patiently and very graciously, gives Gideon the this, this sign of his presence. I am with you. Remember that promise in chapter 6. So here we are now, verse 1, and Gideon, okay, here we go, seems full of courage. He's got his army with him. It, it, it appears as though they're strategically set up for an attack against the enemy. It would appear even in this verse that they maybe have a, a tactical advantage over Midian who's set up in the valley. Though, though this location of the spring of Herod is, is not, it, it's not known, many commentators would believe that it must have been probably at a higher elevation because, because from the text we're seeing that they're looking down into the, the encampment of, of the Midianites. They're in this valley. And so it seems that, they, okay, we've got the guys, we've got the army, we've got position. Gideon here is up early in the morning. He's up early. His army is up early with them. It's, okay, let's go. We've got this job ahead of us. But as we're about to see, Gideon's courage, it's, it's rooted in this self-reliance and it's rooted in this human wisdom and not in his God. See, God sees the heart. God sees our heart. God sees here Israel's heart, and he knows them. He knows them better than they know themselves, and he knows that these people, you yourself, Gideon, you're prone to boasting in yourself. You're prone to boasting in, 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 in thinking that you're about to accomplish what I'm about to give you, and, and that this victory that I'm about to give you, it, God knew was only going to result in Israel's further rebellion and wandering away from them. See, the the point of this text, the point of this narrative of God working through Gideon and Israel isn't the battle and who would win. <laughs> that's not the point. That's, that's, not what's, that's not the tension of the text of will God win, will Midianites, will they prevail? That, that's not the tension in this text whatsoever. The tension here is the heart of God's people, the heart of Gideon. There was no doubt who would win. That, that was already foretold in chapter 6. That's not the tension of the text. God's going to win the battle. The battle actually is already, already won. What, what God is doing here is he's saying, I, I'm going to use this battle. I need to woo you back to me because you've drifted, you've wandered, you've rebelled. What God's doing here is drawing their hearts to himself through his miraculous deliverance over this enemy. But for him to get them there, for him to get Gideon there, he's got to do some pruning He's got to remove all of these temptations towards self-reliance. And he's got to get Gideon to this place of, of total dependence where he's just clinging to God and he has nothing left. And see, that's what we see beginning in verse 2. It says, the Lord said to Gideon, the, the, the people with you are too many 
for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Here's the point. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. See, there's the heart issue that God's concerned about. He's, again, not concerned about the battle. He's concerned about how the people will respond once the battle is won. He knows that their, their knee-jerk response, he knows that Gideon's response is going to be patting themselves on the back, high-fiving one another. If they high-five back there, I don't know. Right? Handing out trophies to one another. Yep, this was the most brave in the battle. This is the one who slayed the most. This is the one who had the most accurate archery. Like, so they're handing out ribbons and, and, and trophies. There, and here we go. And they're boasting in their power. Look what we did. Who needs God? This, this vast Midianite army, we took them all out. Look what we did. He knows that's their heart. And so what God, what's God do first? Well, we, we heard it read. He, he tells Gideon, has Gideon tell anyone in the army, this is a quick one, right? Anyone who's afraid, <laughs> all right, doesn't want to go into battle, hurry home. And immediately 22,000 soldiers split. There's only 10,000 that remain, 70% of Gideon's army in that moment, and they're hightailing it out of there. I don't want any part of this. But, but God's not done yet. Though 10,000 remain, they had 32,000, now they have only 10,000. God still comes to Gideon and says, eh, it's too many. That's too many. And I'm sure Gideon in this moment was shocked as he told the men. Maybe he thought, surely, man, this is my army. No one's leaving. He might have been shocked, maybe, to see 22,000 men leave but maybe he's, he's rationalizing your mind, you know, well, at, at least it's better to go into battle with men who want to be there than, than men who are fearful and afraid. So you, you could maybe even see Gideon still kind of like, well, I've got 10,000 hardened warriors now. Let's do this. And, but God says, nope, too many still. So God knows that this temptation is still in them to boast in themselves. So he, he clips some more. He prunes some more. This time, if you remember from the text, he tells Gideon, all right, take them down to this water, and, and anyone who kneels down to drink and drinking like a dog, like putting their face in the water and licking it up, th- those men, they're going to go home too, and you're going, only going to retain those who, who, who kind of squat and, and just cup the water and drink from their mouths. And so Gideon obeys. He's obedient to what God's calling him to do, even though he's probably, what are you doing, right? Going into battle, we want more. Why do you keep trying to whittle this down? But he's obedient and, and he's left with 300, 300 men. And then here's where God says, all right, you've got enough now. You've got enough to go against this massive army. Now, if you're doing the math in your mind, Gideon began the day with 32,000 soldiers, was whittled down to 10,000. Now he's down to 300. God has pruned away 99% of Gideon's army. Basically, anything that at the beginning of that day that Gideon was trusting in, hoping in, planting his feet in was now completely gone. There was no way 300 men in their own strength would be able to defeat this Midianite army. So, so what is God doing? Remember, the point was not who would win the battle. The thing God was after was their heart, that they needed to be in a place where they were totally dependent upon God and not themselves because it was only there that they would find their source of strength, their joy, their life, and their salvation from this enemy. If you're, if you're a gardener, 
Uh, you, you know that pruning is, is necessary. If you have a garden in your home, uh, you, you understand that. You've got to, you've got to clip and, tr- and, and, and prune things away to create healthy growth. Now, I'm not a gardener. I don't know much about this, but um, over the past couple of years, I've gotten to know uh, a, a guy who's preached here now a few times, Willem uh, Van Gemmeren. And uh, so some of you guys have been here, heard him preach. Uh, he was a professor up at Trinity. He's now retired, written a lot of books, just a, a, a dear friend, a dear man of God, godly man, brilliant. Uh, if, you, if you ever sat down with someone that's just smarter than you, uh, that's, that's him. You just feel dumb in his presence, but I just love being there. Uh, so over the last few years, um, he and I have been able to form just a, a really nice friendship, and uh, he's been just a, a good mentor of mine. So uh, every few months, I head out to his home, and, and we just spend an afternoon together uh, talking about the Bible, talking theology, just talking family, life, and uh, he's just, it's just been uh, great. But uh, first time I went out there, he, he owns quite a bit. Of, of land just north of here outside of El Paso. And so he's, it's all kind of cultivated. He's got a lot of uh, plants and trees and gardens everywhere. And so now anytime that I, uh, I pull up, he's in his little golf cart, and pop in, and he starts driving me around his property and showing me all the new things that he's planted or that he's pruned or whatever he's done. And one of the first times I was there, he walked me through, he has, he has a vineyard on his property. And so there's these long fences with just these, these grapevines just growing. And uh, he actually walked me through this and was showing me uh, the, the, the importance of pruning. And uh, like, again, I knew you, you're supposed to, but I'm like, I never understood why. Uh, and so he walks me through this, like, well, this allows uh, the sunlight to, to better penetrate uh, the vine. This allows better airflow. It, 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 by removing all these branches, it's directing the, the, the source and the strength from the ground to these, these grapes that I want to grow this so that these will be more flavorful and more uh, robust. And, and he says, actually, pruning protects the vine against disease and, and all sorts of different things. And so uh, he shows me this, and over the years, he has me able to stick with it. So last time I was there, uh, he drove me around, and he hasn't touched it for a while, and it's just all overgrown. And, and you could see that nothing Nothing was really growing from it. And uh, he said, this is, this is why I need to prune. When I don't, this is what takes place. It becomes actually unhealthy. And, and so this is really what God is doing in Gideon's life. This is really what God's doing in Israel's life. This is what God is continually doing in, in our lives, even when it feels painful or, or, or confusing. He is pruning so that there would be growth, so that there would be life, so that there would be health. Jesus said in John 15 that he is the vine and we are the branches. And then he says this, that every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. But he says this, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. See, in our life, there's going to be moments where we, we, just, don't, we just don't understand what God is doing. Often when, when faced with trials, when faced with suffering, when faced with difficulty, when faced with conflict, our, our focus a lot of times in those moments is, is, is on the situation and how I'm going to get out of the situation and how I need to best manage the situation. And it's here in those moments, maybe even those, those valleys of life, where we must entrust ourselves to God's affectionate pruning doesn't mean you always understand what he is after and what he is doing, but, but we have to understand that God, like a good gardener, sees what the, the end result will be. 
He, he knows what he's after. He knows what he's trying to, to create. And so God is seeing an end result in us. And to get us there, he oftentimes, like he did here, needs to chop away and prune so that we would grow and be healthy. So in those moments, remember your God is sovereign. Remember God reigns. Remember his kingship Remember that God is love. Remember that God is faithful as we've sung today. Remember that he is good. And so during maybe those seasons of pruning, remember that God's not concerned necessarily over the battle. That's what sometimes where our focus is. How will this come out to be? I need to win this. I need to get through this. God's concern is not necessarily there because he's already won. He's already won. What he's doing is through that, he's working on drawing your heart through that to be totally dependent upon him and his goodness. That's imperative number one, and trust your life to God's affectionate pruning. Imperative number two is that we must behold God's grace and his deliverance. I, I love this in the text. So, so God stripped away Gideon's army to basically nothing. 300 men, Going up against this army is like taking on the United States with nothing but a squirt gun, a couple bottle rockets. Right? It, it is not doable. It's not going to happen. So that's where God was trying to bring Gideon. You can't win this. So, so Gideon, who began that day with some courage, is actually now back to his old self. All right? A place of weakness, a place of fear. And so in verses 9 through 14, we see God intervene. We, come, we see God show up in his weakness with, with his grace. And you see this empowering of Gideon, this lifting up. I love it. See, Gideon's courage that morning was, was rooted in himself on this weak foundation. Our strength, God knows, must be firmly rooted in his grace. So what we see in these verses is, is Gideon's strength being built up upon a strong foundation. Look, look with me again at these verses, starting in verse 9. So it says, after he's whittled everything down, he says, Now the same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I've given it into your hand. There's, there's the promised victory. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with, with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pira, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men and were in the camp, who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number as the sand is on the seashore in abundance. And when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. He said, behold, I dreamed this dream, and Behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and it struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered him, this is no other than the, this is the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given his hand, into his hand Midian and all the camp. Do you see what's happening here? God's giving Gideon another sign. He's given him a sign of his presence his power, his grace. It was actually a sign for the first time that Gideon didn't ask for. God just gave it to him. This is God's grace. Just gives him this because he knew he needed in this moment of weakness to strengthen him. So he tells Gideon, I want you to go sneak into the camp. And, and when you sneak into this camp, you're going to overhear a conversation. And I can tell you what the conversation is. You're going to hear it. And this is going to remind you of where your strength comes from. 
So he does. He sneaks into the camp with his servant. He overhears these two soldiers talking. One of them saying, I had this dream the other night, and, and, and I don't know what this is all about. And his comrade said, this, is, this dream's Gideon. You're talking about Gideon. God's giving you must have this vision, this dream, where Gideon's coming in and laying waste to our camp, to this army. And in that moment, as Gideon hears that, this clear sign from God, his heart was changed. No longer is he now trusting in himself. No longer is he seeing himself as this all-sufficient individual. He, he comes face to face, I believe, in that moment of God's overwhelming, marvelous grace. And he sneaks into this camp, a man full of fear, and he sees and hears God's deliverance, and now he's leaving that camp, a man of courage, strengthened in the Lord. What, what, a, what a beautiful picture this is of, of God's of God's grace toward us. Uh, a few weeks ago, I, I saw this video, uh, this, this lady who was uh, vacationing, and she was along the, the, this beach somewhere. I don't know where it was, but uh, she was probably a little bit too close to the, the, the shoreline or the ocean, and the waves were, began to really crash in, and she was in the worst possible location. She was right in the middle of a riptide. Uh, and so the riptide was literally crashing onto the beach exactly where she was and, and pulling her further into the ocean. And so, again, think about this. She's on the sand, and, and this wave comes in and grabs her, and then next thing you know, she's being pulled in five, six feet. The wave recedes, and you see her get up and start to crawl up the, the, the beach line as best she can, as hard as she can. The next wave comes in, takes her further. I mean, it's just like someone's just pulling her into the ocean, and you can see her face. Uh, it's just something of fear. Now, it's interesting. This is on video. I love how the human being's response in that moment is I got to get my phone. I got to capture this lady being drugged into the ocean. But, but so you're watching this, and here I am watching this, all right? So, so she's being drugged into the ocean with each crashing wave. You can tell each time she's getting more exhausted, more tired, that she's not moving as much. And you can see the fear on her, on her face. Um, just at that moment, you see two lifeguards uh, come in from the side, and they jump into the riptide where she is, and they grab a hold of her. And then others finally join in and they do this kind of like chain or train and they begin to pull her out of that. And I remember watching that thinking, one, how fearful she must have been in that moment. It's, it's fearful just enough to be in the ocean, but when it's like, feels like it's got its arms around you and it's pulling you into the depth, that's terrifying. And so she had to feel so helpless in that moment. But then I thought, Man, how much that must have changed in her as soon as she saw these lifeguards jumping into where she was and they had her. And that had to immediately change her from fearful to, okay, calm and peace. And I was thinking about that just this, this week when I was reading through this text and thinking through even what God was doing in the life of Gideon here. Taking him to this place of complete, like, 300 against this, a complete place of fear, and yet in that moment, this is when God jumps in. And, and here's my grace, and here I'm going to show you how I'm going to deliver you. And, and, and so Gideon leaves that camp fully strengthened and encouraged. You see, our strength, our might, our courage, our hope doesn't come from within us. Like we said at, at the beginning, we were created to live a life fully dependent upon the Lord. And only there, in God's grace, in his deliverance, do we find strength for our souls. Only there do we find freedom and forgiveness from sin's enslavement that tries to just drag us down into the depths. Only there do we find eternal life from that which only condemns us. You see, Jesus is the perfect picture of God's grace and deliverance. 
Because it was Jesus who, who went to the cross. It was Jesus who overpowered and defeated mankind's greatest enemy, sin and death. It was Jesus who, who has overcome and, and through Jesus now freely offers forgiveness, deliverance, acceptance with God through repentance of sin and faith in his life, death, his resurrection. Brothers and sisters, behold God's grace and deliverance. Friends, receive God's grace. There is no work you could do to earn God's favor, to earn salvation. We are simply called to believe and to trust by faith in Christ's sinless life and his death and resurrection. Imperative number two, behold his grace and deliverance. Lastly, imperative number three is arise and worship. Arise and worship. See, after beholding God's grace and deliverance, we see Gideon's response in verse 15. It says, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and he said, arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. See, Gideon began this day with self-reliant courage built on this weak foundation. God pruned away everything that Gideon was hoping and trusting in, which brought him down to his place of fear. In that moment, God shows up lavishing his grace upon Gideon, and that through this grace of God, here we are now at the end of this day with getting back to a place of courage, but this time it's not a place of self-reliant courage, but a courage built on a strong foundation as he is now fearlessly dependent upon the Lord. What's he say to the people? Arise, the Lord has given the host. He's already giving uh, props, all right, to God for what he is about to do. See, once he becomes fully dependent on the Lord, as he worships, as he submits to God's reign, his rule, then and only then is he ready to be set free to lead. See, worship led to fearlessness in his life in the face of this enemy, even though he only had 300 men, now he has no fear, even with them, because he's worshiping and he's holding fast to his God, which makes sense, because you're, you're only as strong, you're only as strong as that which you base your life upon. Think about that. You're only as strong as that which you base your life upon. If you base your life upon comfort and control, if that's your God, if that's what you worship, then, then your life is only strong when see, things seem to be in your control. But as soon as things aren't, your life begins to spiral, doesn't it? Because you're only as strong as that which you base your life upon. If your life is built on financial security, if that's your God, then your life is only strong when you have enough money in the bank. But when financial difficulties hit, when the stock market crashes, what, what takes place again? Fear, worry. Life begins to crumble because you're basing your life on that. Plug and play any of our, our, our modern-day idols, and you'll discover the same thing over and over again, that you're only as strong as that which you base your life upon. So I'll say it again. You, you and I were created to live dependently upon the Lord, to base our lives upon his foundation. And so when Gideon based his life upon this foundation, as he worshiped his God, he was fearless and courageous as he faced the enemy in front of him. What are you basing your life upon? What are you building your life upon? When faced with the enemy who only, who only seeks to steal, kill, and destroy you, do, you, do you cower in fear or do you walk courageously knowing your God has already won? 
when faced with the things which threaten to unravel our lives, do you rest secure in the promises and the character of our God? In the midst of conflict, do we, do we trust and believe that Jesus is present? Like what we see in Matthew 18. In the midst of, of conflict with, with brothers and sisters who are in sin, Jesus says, listen, if they're in sin and you bring two or three with you to, to go to them, he, he gives us promise and I'm with you in the midst of that, that conflict, in the midst of that tension. I'm there. So in the midst of conflict, do we trust and believe he's present with us? When faced with physical suffering, do you believe that God's grace is sufficient, like what God told to Paul in, in, in 2 Corinthians 12, when, when he was afflicted with this physical ailment and he pleads with God to remove it from him and God says, no, it's going to stay with you, but my grace is sufficient. I'm giving you something better. My presence, my grace, when faced with our own physical suffering, do you believe God's grace is enough? When faced with persecution, intimidation, oppression from the world, is Jesus your joy and delight? Like what James says in James 1, count it my joy, count it joy, brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. Why? Because God's at work. He's doing something through this. We don't see it all, but he's at work. Do we, do we trust him in that? When things seem out of your control, can you Pray with confidence. It's not my will, but your will be done like what Jesus instructs us to pray in Matthew 6. See, as we think through these things, we're only gonna be as strong as what we base our life upon. And, and, and if we're basing our life upon a faulty or shoddy foundation, it's going to crumble. And we're gonna be left spiraling in fear and, and anxiousness. Yeah, my, my first few years, I've, I've had the joy of pastoring uh, in this position here for now close to seven years now. And, and um, in, the, in the first couple of years especially, uh, this still happens now, but oh man, I, I don't know how many laps I took around this auditorium uh, when nobody's here. And I do, this is my, this is my spot where I pray a lot. I, I pray, I walk around this and I pray for you, I pray for, for the church, pray for myself. And man, those first few years, I don't know how many times I walked around this auditorium and be like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'll be totally honest with you. I, what am I doing? What are you thinking? And, and so walking through this in those first few years, um, and, and, and pastoral ministries, you know, in one day you're going to have the highest of highs, the lowest of lows, and everything in between. And, and especially in those first few years, there was a lot of turbulence that we walked through uh, as, as just a church. We dealt with some conflict and some uh, church discipline issues and some financial uh, struggles. And there's just lots of different things that were just like, what in the world? Our, our playground burnt down. And uh, I, remember, I think that was toward the end. I remember walking out there. I'm like, am I Jonah? Like, you just need to throw me overboard and these things will stop, right? I think our church got struck by lightning, remember? Like, it was just all these things taking place. I remember thinking in those first few years, like, what in the world is going on? And uh, so I began very early on. I have a, a, a note, a digital notebook, and, and I've just kept a, a running list. And it's just titled My First Few Years. And, and it's not a, a journal, so to speak, but it's just a lot of bullet points of just here's what we face. Just this, just this, is this conflict, is this issue, is this church discipline case, is this uh, conflict with this person or financial, whatever it may be. And I just wrote it out as we were going through it. And then as God would deliver over and over, as he proved himself faithful, I'd go back to it. And I would just write a line that says, God is good, God is faithful. And, and, and what I did for that and why I, why I needed to do that was because my heart is prone to, you know, we're all fight or flight. I'm flight. And so when difficulty comes, my first response is, oh, no, and how do I get out of this? 
And, and so I needed to come back to that time and time again. It was kind of my rock of remembrance uh, to go to and be like, okay, he's shown himself faithful here and here and here. He is good. And so it's this way for me to continually come back and say, I've got to build my life upon him. It's got to be built upon him. And see, we are only going to be as strong as that which we base our life upon. And so what are you basing your life upon? To move to a place of courage and strength and stability in the face of life's, in, in the face of life's troubles and hardships, which they're sure to come. They're going to come. We must be fearlessly dependent upon the Lord. And so entrust your life to God's affectionate pruning. Behold God's grace and deliverance and arise and worship. Let's pray.